Thanks very much. Those of you who either actually want to hear me or those of you who can't fit into one of the other seminars, that's also, that's also fine. I'm going to be, it's called, you know, the manager's guide to mental health, but I don't want you particularly to think about managers and sort of plans and what to do and line management and employees. I want to think broader than that, okay? I want to think leaders leading an organisation. How do you bring about the culture of talking about mental health in your organisation and also um, if you're working with volunteers who are not paid staff, a lot of what I'm going to say is going to be quite applicable to that. Even sort of local networks or, or groups in your church, people who help with the youth group, that sort of thing. How do you manage mental health problems in, in, in those sorts of groups as well? Um, so we're going to start fairly sort of generally, um, just a bit more just about myself. I'm a consultant psychiatrist in Edinburgh. And um, as you said, I've been in New Zealand for a couple of years, but before that I was in Edinburgh for 11 years before that. And on a fairly regular basis, I'm asked to contribute to, is this person able to work? What are the conditions required for work? So I'm meant to know something about this area and obviously work with sort of occupational health colleagues as well. So a lot of what is distilled in this is is from those conversations. But the aim is to try and start quite a long way back from that and just think about the culture in our workplaces. So what I'd like you to do just um, on the next slide, just in terms of when did you last hear about mental health discussed at work? Now, if you're not at work, you can substitute for in my group of friends, but maybe to do with work or to do with people's activity or in my church or something like that. So um, if, if you can just discuss that, and was it done positively or negatively? So just, we've, you've been here for the whole morning, so you're all friends now, so appropriate disclosure, there's no need to bear all, but please just turn into groups of twos and threes and perhaps just have a little bit, bit of a chat around that. So for those of you who were wondering, this is a picture of an icebreaker. And the idea is just to get you talking. But people have got lots to say. This is excellent. Okay, can we put the next slide up? When you start talking about mental health at work, we can often seem to get quite a sort of negative picture. And these are some stats that if you want to go sort of digging for stats on the interweb where we know that, you know, 99% of statistics are made up and so on. But these ones are not... These ones are from Public Health England, from the Department of Health. These are the guys who actually pay the benefits bill. So we hope they've got their math right at the point. But these are quite scary figures, aren't they? You know, bottom left, each year mental ill health costs the economy an estimated 70 billion. That is a lot of money, okay? And, and health services, you know, the, the, the spending on mental health services just in, just in Scotland is one billion in Scotland. It's, it's going to be sort of 20-odd times or 10 times that odd across the whole of the UK. So these are, these are expensive conditions. Mental health are expensive conditions because they, they start early in people's lives and they often can come with, with quite a lot of disability, more perhaps than, than cancer or heart disease, which you often think of as being expensive conditions. Mental health is financially a very significant thing. So there's, there's a lot of interest in 
trying to improve mental health in the workplace. And as always with these things, sometimes you feel as though um, things are left too late. You wait until people become ill. There isn't enough money spent on, on health promotion, for example, and health prevention. And I think one of the big messages I'd want to get across today is actually is that, that the church and Christian organisations are ideally placed to do that because other Christians in workplaces should be, hopefully, compassionate colleagues, compassionate employees, and churches should be providing the kinds of supportive community that can stop mental health problems really affecting all aspects of a person's life. So, so we should be in the business of health promotion, and that's very much a direction that we want to be taking mind and soul in the future. And I think on that sort of line, the next slide, you know, it's not that bad. You'll go out there and you'll read those scary, scary, scary statistics, but actually the country is still going... We haven't sort of ground to a halt, you know, people are still working. And people are working despite experiencing quite significant mental health symptoms. They can still do it. You know, Kate was talking about her, her group of friends this morning and some of them seem to have sort of, her girls, her daughter's friends, some seem to have sort of parked up on a, on a diagnosis. And actually, do you know what we want to say? People can work. I have people in my outpatient clinic who are you wouldn't necessarily know they're ill. They do actually struggle quite a lot, but they are able to work with appropriate supports and adjustments, and that's what I want to try and cover in this sentence. And the other bit of good news, just on the next slide, is that this is all online. Everything I'm going to say is online. This article, fingers crossed if I did the right buttons, has just gone live on the Minor Soul Foundation website. So that should be there on our front page. Perhaps someone can have a look and tell me if it's there or not. And everything I'm going to say is written out in longhand, and you can also download a, a, a PDF of my slides as well. So, so it's all there, it's all available, you don't need to scribble madly, and this seminar will be in, in the podcast in due course. But what I would like to do on the next slide is have a bit of a think. Why is it an issue? Why are we scared about doing mental health promotion? Why... You know, if, if someone said to you, you know, let's have a coffee morning to raise money for cancer at work, you might do that. If someone said, have a coffee morning to raise issues about mental health, you think, oh, <laughs> not quite sure I'd like to be the person volunteering to, you know, what is it that's going on in our workplaces that make this an issue? You, there was a great buzz. So some of those conversations you were having earlier, please continue those conversations. Why do we struggle to talk about mental health in the workplace? Off you go. Now, if, if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to take feedback from every single group session. Um, I'm going to try and give a few answers just, just from here, because it, it's quite a big hall, um, and it's difficult to hear everybody. But we are going to have the opportunity of a roving mic going around at the end to ask some questions. So, so please do store your questions up. But I'm, I'm guessing that some of the things you were thinking about were exemplified by the three icons on this slide. And the first, the first is meant to represent stigma or embarrassment, that you think, hang on, you know, I don't really want to raise this. It's, it's so much easier, isn't it, to, to raise money for cancer or for kiddies, or even better, kiddies with cancer. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to, to speak out about mental health problems and to raise money and raise awareness. And sometimes that's prejudice. Sometimes that's rudeness and prejudice and ought to be challenged. So, for example, do you say um, that person's a schizophrenic or do you say someone who experiences schizophrenia or, or psychosis or voices? You know, the, we wouldn't say that person's an alcoholic. Well, we might do, but is that right? You know, so that person's a diabetic. They're not labelled and consumed. But often it's ignorance. It's not so much hard prejudice. It's people who don't know what to say. They don't know how to have these kind of conversations. 
Also, sometimes you might be working in quite small organisations um, where perhaps there's just a few people in, in the team and if one of those people is off with anxiety or depression, it puts a whole bunch of stress on the other people in the team and then you're not really sure, you know, can I, can I raise this? Um, am I going to put my foot in it? And also when you're working with lots of volunteers, um, sometimes you know, these, these volunteers have not necessarily had an occupational health assessment or something like that. They're just volunteers who said, yeah, I'd like to help, um, you know, putting the chairs out on a Sunday morning. It could be something relatively simple, and you don't know anything about their particular health needs. So there's often quite a lot of difficulties in terms of, of, of raising this. So what I've tried to do on the next slide is just come up with a really simple sort of three-step process just to try and help think you through this. And this is not rocket science, this is just a structure to get you to think about how to do this in your leadership role. And the first thing is just to do what you can to promote it and get the issue out into the open before the problems start. If emotions can be discussed generally, then it's much easier to discuss emotional things when they need to be discussed. So what is the plan for that in your organisation generally? The other thing is, what are the things that you can do to help? No one's asking anyone to be an amateur psychotherapist or anything like that, but there's some, probably some simple things that you can do as a leader or a manager that will help people get through 80% of the, the sort of situations or whatever it is. And then the third thing is, you know, know your limits, know when to refer, know how to refer, find that kind of stuff out before you're sort of scrabbling around looking for the right policy or what, or perhaps there isn't a policy, you know. Um, find out what's going on before you find yourself in that situation. And a good manager, just the next slide, is someone who's going to be working across that spectrum continually. They're going to be someone who's attempting to sort of raise the issue of well-being, perhaps is a better word rather than mental health, you know, well-being, team, all those sorts of things. Those things are going to be on the agenda anyway. And they're also someone who's going to be available, you know, knowing what's going on at the, at the thicker end of the wedge before, before the problems get there. And I'm using the words sort of leader and manager in a fairly flexible kind of way because I think this is something where we both need to be talking about culture, vision, strategy, things that you might associate with leadership, as well as the minutiae, the policy, the plan, things that you might associate with manager. So I know it's called lead well and this is called manager's mental health, but don't, don't worry about it. What, what does it mean to, to take a group of people forward and what are the kinds of things I need to have? So if we think a little bit about the first of those, this sort of promoting sort of situation, one of the key messages I think is that this is something for everybody. Everybody should be interested in wellness at work. Mental health stuff is not something that happens to those funny people over there or that room in the corner of the church where the counsellor is that has pastoral shades and a box of tissues. You know, that's not how to manage health, mental health in a church where it's, it's all over there. We want to be discussing this in the whole thing. So, you know, should there be a focus for Mental Health Awareness Week in your church or your organisation or something? Let's have these things out there. Um, everybody should have a personal development plan. Now, not obviously, if perhaps you're just a volunteer in the youth group, you know, you don't need to have a personal development plan, you know, where you've got your life mapped out. But certainly the more significant roles in, in volunteering and also in a, in a paid organisation, everybody should have a personal development plan. It doesn't need to be, you know, 
what, what course are you going to do next year? Not everyone needs to do a course. Not everyone needs to be developed. But I guess if, if everyone has got a bit of paper that says, this is what I'm hoping to get out of this, and this is what I need to support me, and this is what I want to be maybe developing in or have thought about or would like to know more about. If you've got that on the table for everybody, then you can make wellness and well-being a part of that. And a little bit of that will be things like mandatory training. So, for example, probably many people will have to do perhaps basic CPR or attend a fire lecture or something like that. What you could do is you could make one aspect of mandatory training to do with wellness. Perhaps even, you know, someone ought to do mental health first aid. You have a physical health first aid in the team. Why shouldn't you have someone who's trained in, in, in mental health first aid? So there's ways that you can bring wellness and, and mental health aspects into everything for everybody. You can talk about it in the working environment. You know, you can make it a mentally good place to work. One of the sort of ideas I find quite helpful is to think about hygiene factors and enjoyment factors. Now, what I mean by a hygiene factor is stuff that, if it's unhygienic, it just really annoys everybody. So if the office is really hot, it just, you know, it's, it's difficult for anyone to work in a hot office, a noisy office, an office where the photocopier is spewing out its polycarbons or whatever it does. You know, there's, there's certain offices that are difficult to work in. So what can you do to make your office as pleasant as possible? You know, Google goes as far as having table tennis tables and massages and all this kind of... I'm not saying you have to go all that far, but what, what can you do to remove some of these unpleasant hygiene factors and what enjoyment factors can you build in? You know, can you try and make sure that the team actually has lunch together, for example, rather than all eating at their desks? They're relatively simple things, but they will contribute to the the mental health of an organization. They will show that you are giving well-being a focus as the leader or the manager. And perhaps having a particular focus in mental health awareness or it's time to talk is the slogan for the English charity Time to Change. There's a similar charity in Scotland where I work called See Me and they will have a particular it's time to talk days on the 6th of February every year where there's all a bunch of stuff on social media and you can have a you can, you can show a video at work. They've got some fantastic resources on, the, on their YouTube channel. So there's things you can do perhaps to have focuses throughout the year. On the next slide, in terms of a stitch in time saves nine, what can you do to help? And the idea here, I suppose, is that relatively simple things will help someone keep going. Most people are not going to need to be diagnosed, as we're saying. What are the sort of things that will help self-management of emotions. We all have emotions that go up and down. Um, and if you're allowed to self-certify from your GP, if you've got flu for a few days, no one needs to, you know, label you as having a, a bacterial infection. And that doesn't need to go, you know, you just had flu for a few days and you weren't there for a few days and you can self-certify. And if it goes on for longer than five days, that's fine. You've got to try and get a sick note or a fit note or whatever it's called. But you, you can self-certify for a few, flu, flu for a few days. So why shouldn't you be able to have a mental health day? Now, obviously, someone needs to be keeping an eye on how many mental health days you're having. But I know, I know charities. So, for example, Christians Against Poverty, it's in their policies that you are allowed two mental health days per year. No questions asked. And for some people, that will literally be a duvet day, where they just have to stay under the duvet. For other people, they might actually be going out and going for a walk. And everyone says, well, if they're going for a walk, why can't they go to work? But it's, that's what they are saying they need for their mental health. So permission people to have mental health days. Perhaps think about a, 
a wellness action plan. Again, this could be one of these things for everybody, but if someone is struggling with their mental health, there's something called a WAP plan or a RAP plan, a wellness recovery action plan. There's a link in the article on the website to how you can develop one and do one for your team. My advice would be do it for everybody on your team. Let's all have a wellness plan in the same way that we all ought to be watching our cholesterol and so on and be healthy eating. We all ought to have a wellness plan. And also, you might, certainly larger organisations, larger charities might have a, some sort of employee assistance programme. So that could be something like um, money off joining a local gym, or it could be access to for counselling sessions or something like that. This is probably is more larger organisations, but if your organisation is not that big, perhaps you might want to explore and see what are some of the things that are available to you locally and perhaps consider making that available for people to access and they, they can say look I'd like to go and make use of this and they don't have to ask too many questions they just want to you know go and see a local counsellor you don't have to ask none of your business to ask this is not affecting their work they're just saying I just need to do a little bit of this and as long as it's not too much of it you don't need to be sticking your beak in you might have some people on your team who have got chronic mental health problems and they're actually doing fantastically well, they're, they're working in paid employment or they're, they're volunteering to a, a, a good level or they're volunteering regularly. What I would say is, you know, they could have quite significant illnesses like schizophrenia, have spent large amounts of time in hospital, for example, but if they're working with you, they're working with you. The simple things still work, okay? The employee assistance program still works. You're not going to break anyone by doing a WAP plan. As long as it's led by them, mental health days are still good. Listen to people because they probably know what works for them. If, if someone says, look, can I start work at 10 a.m. and finish at 6 p.m.? There may well be a reason for that. And don't push too hard. But, you know, these are small, small adjustments. And if your team meeting is at 9 o'clock, well, maybe you could change your team meeting. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's simple things. Allow people to... And actually, the law requires you to do this. I'll, I'll come on and say that a bit later. But these, these simple adjustments you can make. And don't forget to allow time off for appointments. So in the same way that you would allow someone time off to go and see a cancer specialist, and you wouldn't argue too much about that, I think you should allow someone time off to see their psychiatrist. Or, of course, if they're seeing their psychologist, it might be a weekly appointment for 12 weeks or 30 weeks. It's their legal requirement to have that time off to get that help. Okay? So... so these are, these are things that we need to be aware of, and some of these appointments can be regular. shouldn't be regular forever, but it might be, might be weekly therapy for a while, okay? And they might have to take half a day off in order to attend that therapy. Well, said I was going to say a little bit about mental health first aid. Um, I'm actually not going to try and teach you mental health first aid, partly because... Some of you will know it and actually be quite good at it. And others of you, um, it's a bit like me teaching you the full St. John's Ambulance first aid in five minutes. It, it's not going to be effective. Um, what I'd say, you know, if the leg's broken, don't try and walk on it, you know. Um, but mental health first aid is actually a really good course. What it is, it, there's mental health first aid in England. There's a Scottish one. I think there's one in Northern Ireland. It's run all around the world. And it's basically a bit like doing a St. John's Ambulance first aid course where you go on a course for six Wednesday evenings or something like that or ten Wednesday evenings and you end up with a qualification as a mental health first aider and it teaches you how to deal with people who are psychotic or drunk or suicidal or having a panic attack or all of those sort of first responder kind of things. I think it'd be a great thing to do as a, do as a church. Don't worry about the fact that it's a, 
a secular course, if that makes sense, because it's, it's no more secular than this table. It's just, just not a religious course. You, you can put the religious bit in, so you can work out whether or not prayer is part of your first mental health first aid response, and that will partly depend on your church tradition and also partly what's appropriate in the situation. But you, you, you can, you can Christianise the content. It's, it's really good training. It's available up and down the country. So mental health first aid, if you've got any team of a reasonable size, I would say you should have a mental health first aider on it. And then finally, before I let you guys do a bit more talking, refer. When to know your limits. Help is available. There's, there's always someone you can ask for help. I remember the first night that I was on call um, as, a, as a consultant psychiatrist, and I, I suddenly realised that I was responsible between 5pm and 9am the next morning for the mental health of best part of a million people, and that sort of freaked me out slightly. And I thought, well, help, you know, as always, you know, when I was training, there's always someone else else, else to ask. And, and then I realised, actually, I could always... Um, ask my, my boss as the clinical director and he could always ask the medical director and the medical director could always ask the chief executive and the chief executive could always ask the first minister and I guess the first minister could always ask the queen. So, you know, the, there's always someone who you can ask in these kind of situations. So don't panic, there are people you can ask. Now, bigger organisations will have occupational health services as part of them, embedded within that. Medium-sized ones, it might be outsourced to a local, a local um, occupational health provider. So, for example, CAP, as, as, as a charity, have access to an occupational health nurse who you can book an appointment with without having to go through your manager, if that makes sense. They have that facility available, and they can also refer formally through that route if, if need be. Um, if you haven't got that, chances are your local NHS trust may well actually have a, um, a bunch of occupational therapists who will run mental health supports, people who are in work. In, in Edinburgh, we've got a service called Fit for Work, and anyone can refer who's from a smaller organisation who haven't got their own occupational health. So there's probably something in your region. You might need to ring up the local mental health team and say, look, I, I'm, I'm not wanting to refer someone. I just want to know if you've got some sort of occupational health service that I can access as, a, as an employee, because they may well have. And obviously, if you are employing or, or managing people who are seeing a, a psychiatrist, you know, appropriately, there might be occupational health advice or, or recommendations coming, coming in, in that direction as well. So what I'd like you to do is have a bit of a discussion about that. I've just put a few things up there, but you don't need to stick to those things. The, the important thing is perhaps to think about those three stages of promote, help, and offer. You know, what rewards and benefits does your organisation have? Now, if you're like me, you work for the NHS, you know, the idea of employee rewards is not high on one's radar, shall we say. I've got a friend who works in HR for a large bank and she runs an entire rewards department. I have no idea what happened. They do bonuses and all this kind of clever stuff. Um, doesn't happen in the NHS, but, but we do actually have quite a lot of employee benefits in, in the NHS. And, you know, it could be simple things like relationships with a local gym or something like that. Is it enough? Should your organisation be doing more? Should they have more, more benefits? Does everyone have a a, a, a PDP or is, or is it sort of something that's just a paper exercise? Is it worth anything? And how do you access formal occupational health services in, in your organisation or your church? Is it through the diocese? Does anyone know? Um, you know, these are the sort of things we should be thinking about before there's an actual crisis. And have a bit of a conversation about that in your groups for five minutes. Off you go. 
So as I say, just to be clear, I, I do not have the right answers. I don't know whether you should have more rewards. I don't know what occupational health services are available near you. But one of the reasons why I'm raising this is I think, I think we need to find out. And one of the reasons why we need to find out is, is because there's legal obligations placed upon us. So I'm going to cover the law, because it always sort of scares people and sort of freaks people out and think, oh, you know, what are my legal obligations in this area? You know, I understand certain types of disability, like having, having an access ramp. And of course, that actually is, is extreme simplification of an understanding of disability is to have an access ramp or a hearing loop. You know, that does not tick the box. That is not understanding disability. Um, and actually, if you do understand physical disability properly and better than just putting a hearing loop in, I think you go some way towards understanding how to, how to manage mental, mental health disability as well. Because the, the law is relatively simple. These will be laws that you will have heard of and, and you will know. So the first of these is, is the Health and Safety at Work Act. You all know this because you probably had to do risk assessments if there's workmen in or something like that. And the Health and Safety at Work Act just basically says that um, there's balanced responsibilities in it. So employees, and by this I also mean people who manage volunteers, let's be clear about that. If you are giving people a task and they are doing stuff on your premises, then it's very similar to you employing them. Okay? So. Um, in, the, the employers need to assess, they need to provide training, and they need to do what they can to reduce the risks. So, for example, um, if you are an organisation who takes people into quite, a, quite difficult situations, perhaps situations of um, being a street pastor or something like that, do you have a risk assessment around abuse, um, verbal abuse and workplace stress. I would suggest you probably ought to have a risk assessment around that, rather than just saying, that's part of it, we hope it doesn't happen too much, and sort of cross your fingers and everything. You probably ought to have a risk assessment around some of these sorts of areas where, which are perhaps impacting more directly on mental health. Um, and likewise, you probably need to provide some training in that area. But employees also have responsibilities. Sometimes it seems as though all the responsibilities are on the manager. That's not the case. Employees have the responsibility to attend the training that is put in, to seek help if they are struggling in the workplace, and also to follow any guidance which is issued by occupational health. So there are balanced responsibilities there in in the, in the Health and Safety at Work Act. And we're just all we're doing is just applying that to, to mental, health, mental health areas. The Equality Act lists, because mental health is part of health, it's a protected characteristic under the Equality Act. So it is illegal to discriminate against people on the basis of their mental health, okay? And, but this only applies to issues affecting work. That's the other thing to say, okay? So that's particularly important because let's supposing you, I don't know, let's supposing you've got good reason to believe that someone is quite depressed at the moment. What it would mean is that you, you can't, actually do anything about it until it is impacting their work, okay? Because that is your job as the line manager or the volunteer or, the, you know, if they appear to be depressed and perhaps not looking after themselves, you know, you, you can approach them as a friend or someone else in the team can approach them as a friend, that's absolutely fine, but you, you can't address that as a management manager unless it is becoming a, a workplace issue. And there's a good reason for that, partly privacy, but also because actually that, that protects you as, as well, because there's a whole bunch of assumptions that we can make, and I'll come on to that in a second. 
But what the Equality Act does say is we need to focus on what people can do. These protected characteristics are there to give guidance for areas that we need to consider. But the whole aim of the Equality Act is to say people can do amazing and wonderful things. And that is the great news about the church and Christian organisations, is we're interested in getting the best out of people. It's not primarily about the bottom line. Even investors and financial services are beginning to look at impact investing and microfinance and this sort of thing. You know, people are realising the bottom line is not where it is. And I think the church is, is a long way ahead on that. But you're focusing on what they can do, and you are required by law to make reasonable adjustments. Now, reasonable adjustments sound really complicated. What, what is a reasonable adjustment? It's, it's an adjustment which is reasonable for that team to make to enable that person to remain in employment or remain as a volunteer. So, for example, if you are a small firm on the eighth floor of a building and you have one employee who perhaps might need a lift, it's, it's not a reasonable adjustment for you to fork out a million pounds and put a lift in, okay? That, that is an unreasonable adjustment. There's other ways that you need to think about how you manage that situation, but there's no mandatory requirement to put a, put a lift in, okay? So that'd be one example of an unreasonable adjustment. And the, the good news about reasonable adjustments is there's lots and lots and lots of guidance on that, and I've put that here on the next slide. There's a Department of Health um, document, and this also applies north of the border as well, um, about, you know, what are a reasonable adjustments for mental health. And these are the kinds of things, these are all reasonable adjustments in mental health. So for example, someone has, has SAD, let them have a light box on, on, their, on their, their desk. Now, actual fact, they probably just need 40 minutes of it and perhaps they can have it before they come into work. But, you know, it's not a big deal to let someone have a light box. Let them work from home from some of the week, okay? If it is specifically for a mental health condition and it would otherwise affect their performance, they are legally allowed to do that. Now, if you run a team, it's not possible to let someone work from home for the entire week. That's not compatible with team function. That is an unreasonable adjustment. But to spend some of the week at home if they struggle with social anxiety, you're probably actually going to get more from them. Okay? Um, allowing multiple short breaks rather than few longer breaks. That is not just for the smokers among us. Okay? Well, we let the smokers do it, don't they? Don't we? So actually for people with ADHD or with anxiety that, or with autism, that could be really good, to let people come into a busier environment and they can manage it for a little while, but five minutes every half hour, they're just going to need to walk around the building. Okay? That's a reasonable adjustment. Allowing time off each week for therapy, again, a, a reasonable adjustment if, if that is not impacting on the job that you're, you're asking them to do. Difficult conversations. Ask you guys to do a little bit of work again just here. Um, the, the, the slogan on the right there says, In the UK, the top three hardest conversations we face in our lives are all work related pay, colleagues' inappropriate behaviour, or feedback on poor performance. Now, those are really difficult conversations to have. I think the pay one's possibly even worse than the mental health conversation, but there we are. So, what I'd like you to do in your groups is just spend a few minutes thinking about that. How do you spot mental health problems? You think, I, I've been put in this conversation off. I really need to have this conversation. How do, you, how do you know that? How do you raise it? And maybe, why didn't they raise it? Why didn't they come and put their hand up and say, I'm struggling? In your groups, just a few minutes about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep us moving along because I want to allow some time for questions and answers at the end. 
And also we need to get finished up before the other seminars come back in. Now the good news is that the first question up there is a trick question. You do not spot mental health problems. Okay? And the reason for that is I'm a psychiatrist and I can't spot mental health problems. All right? So I do not have, I do not have the ability to read minds. Um, I always used to think when I spoke and no one sat in the front row that they thought I could read their minds, but then I realized it was just a church thing. Um, but, but, you know, it's, I can't read minds. I have no idea whether this is a mental health problem. And it comes back to what I was saying earlier about your role as a manager is to focus on performance-related issues and issues that are affecting them doing their job. And that protects you from putting your foot in it and accusing someone of having a mental health problem when they haven't. Because it could be something else. They could have a physical health problem. It could be they're bereaved. You know, who knows? Okay, it stops you from, from putting your foot in it. And that's really important. So, so how do you plan a, a meeting? Just on the next slide there. The, the first step is... Be, pro be proactive. If you'd done step one of three, if you'd had mental health and well-being discussed in your organisation, it's easier to raise these kinds of issues when they need to be raised. Okay? Second thing, don't rely on gossip. If you're a manager and someone comes up to you and says, I'm really worried about so-and-so, they've been doing this and a bit that, and you know, I think there might be something going on, and I'm, you know, I'm wondering where they've been going off to. Absolutely useless information. Okay? Uh, you need to say to that person, I can't do anything with that information. I don't want to hear any more until you've got some hard facts. Okay? You need to be aware of their fears in coming forward. Now, I'm not going to recap them, but, but people are worried about what people think. And there's a link in, in the references to a whole list of reasons why perhaps people don't come forward. And again, I refer to my first step out of three. If you are putting this on the table, it's easier for people to come forward. Fourth thing, set a clear agenda. Okay? This is a performance issue that we need to discuss, but we are here to help, okay? So you're not fudging the issue. You are saying, look, this is a meeting I need to have with you because I'm concerned about how you are managing your job at the moment. Perhaps don't use the word performance-related issue. Sounds a bit scary. But be clear that this is a formal meeting, okay? I'm assuming before this that you have left your office door open or colleagues have tried to support people or something. If you do need to have that difficult conversation, make sure you're clear that this is a difficult conversation, but that you're here to help. The aim is to, is to help this person in, in the situation they're in. Be clear about what's confidential. So the majority of it will be confidential unless it impacts, the, uh, possesses a risk to someone else or a crime has occurred that needs to be reported to the police. Generally speaking, most of these things can be confidential. And actually, you don't need to know the details. You just need to say, these are the reasons why perhaps you've been struggling. You know, what, what you're looking for is, is sort of data, I suppose. You know, sickness rates, time off work, delays in, in doing the work. It's far better to go with hard information like that and say, look, you, your sickness rates have been really high. We need to have a conversation about why that is, rather than making assumptions about their mental health. You maybe may wish to invite HR or the vicar or whoever else is, 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 is part of that. Let them invite someone as well, okay, be it a support person or could be someone from their union or something like that. These, these things are all allowable and encouraged. It's far better to say, look, as long as you're happy, let's have as many people in the room as we need to. Let's not have too many, you know, we don't need to air your dirty linen. But let, let's have the people in the room if, if that means it will be a better and more productive meeting and we can actually start making some, some changes. 
Ask them what they think will help. People may often have quite clear ideas, particularly if they've had mental health difficulties for a while. They may know what works for them. They may say, look, can I have five mental health days over the course of the next two months, and after that I'll go back to the normal two a year. You know, ask them. They're probably not going to ask for something completely unreasonable. There are people out there who will abuse the system and swing the lead and make unreasonable demands, but the vast majority of people just want to be good employees and good volunteers. That's, that's why they're there. And there's a link there to the Shaw Trust, who are an organisation who uh, do a lot of work around occupational health, and they've got some great lists of, of do's and don'ts if you're having that kind of meeting. What if they don't want help? There are some people who will avoid, procrastinate. There are difficult people who we have to work with from time to time. And the first thing I think to say is take time. It's been probably going on for a long time. You know, the meeting probably doesn't have to happen next week. Okay, this is probably a problem of some years. Try and find independent help in some way. You know, say to them, look, if you can't talk to me, will you please go and talk to the church councillor, talk to your GP, talk to somebody because that will give me some reassurance that you're addressing this even if you're not addressing it through us. As a last resort, sometimes a formal referral to occupational health, there are standards to do a job. You do have to be able to, to do a job and if someone can't do the job for a sustained period of time, even because of illness, that is an issue that needs to be addressed. There's no point in keeping someone in a role if they haven't been to work for two years. It's not really helping anyone. So there are limits to how far you, you may wish to allow people slack. Okay, so, so an occupational health will guide you on, on the time limits and that kind of thing. But you, you need to be quite clear that this behaviour or, or this level of activity is not actually compatible with the job that is being paid for or the volunteering that is being needed. And at some point that needs to be resolved. There might be fluctuations, grace, undulations, but at some point that needs to be addressed. And the last thing to say is, if occupational health are involved, you have to do what occupational health say. Okay, so as a manager, if occupational health come back to you with a graded return to work plan, that's what you've got to go along with. You can't have your cake and eat it. Okay, so if you, if you do outsource and get the professionals involved, the quid pro quo is you have to do what the professionals say. So to close... Um, before we just ask for some general questions about what I'd like you to do is just pause and reflect. I know I've given you lots and lots of information. It's all online. You're going to want to go and work through the online stuff and ask those questions. You're going to want to discuss them with other leaders who you know, because I don't know the answers. You're going to have to find some of them out locally for you. And you're going to want to reflect on it. I think this has probably been quite a tough seminar. So before we take some questions, I'd like you to share one thing that you've learned today with the person next to you. Write down one thing that you need to go and find out about, and then we'll take any other questions. So, off you go. Okay, so we've got time just for a couple of questions. People are coming back from the other seminars, but they're early, not you, don't worry. So, Jared has got a, a microphone. If you want to ask a question, pop your hand up, and I'll do my best to deal with it. Yeah, lady just here. Stand up and shout, and I'll repeat it. Yep, yep, so asking about the value of supervision and if that helps. I think, I think it, it depends on the job, if that makes sense. So people ought to have meetings with their superior on a semi-regular basis 
as part of normal line management. Um, if it's a particularly difficult job, then yes, I think supervision is a good idea. There's a few prof prof professions that require you to have supervision. So therapists, for example, will go and do group supervision every couple of weeks. And if that's something that will make your team work better and help people process these kinds of things, particularly if they're at the, the coalface doing difficult work, I think that's really important. You know, and it's best to have regular supervision than waiting for a crisis and then trying to debrief, which we know, know doesn't work. Two more questions, maybe? Yeah. Hello. Hello. Hello there. Hi. Um, I work for a national charity at a mental health drop-in centre in the Midlands. Um, and my job is to recruit volunteers to work with young people who are struggling with their mental health. Okay. Um, now, so I need to make sure that the volunteers that I recruit are um, kind of stable in their own mental health to be able to deal with the kind of stuff they're going to hear. It's going to be quite intense. Um, obviously, I'm not asking for perfection because, like we said, we're all on a journey, right? Um, but by law, I'm slightly concerned. Like, am I allowed to, to ask about where they are on their journey to check, A, for their own sake, are they ready for this? Because I don't want them to have triggers and then them to get set back. But also, we need to protect the young people that the type of people they're working with are ready for what they're going to hear. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so it's a balance. Um, there are genuine occupational requirements, so if one of the requirements of the job is to be able to listen to difficult mental health situations and the person can't do that, then that is a genuine question to ask and that would be part of appropriate occupational health screening. Um, and the, the problem is it's quite difficult to pin down exactly, so, so what you might want to do is give people some guidance, like for example, they perhaps need to have been out of hospital for a period themselves, um, perhaps not be actively self-harming. And you, you might need to have some fairly concrete criteria, but people may wish to challenge the criteria, but you can also challenge their fitness. And, you know, the aim would be to keep this as a sensible, sensible kind of conversation so you can find a way through together. Likewise, your role will be to train and support. Their role will be to attend the training and flag if they're struggling in any way. Take one more question. Yeah. I just wonder whether you have any um, comments or advice on blurred boundaries when you're working in Christian organisations, because in our organisation, for example, our line manager is also our church leader who has pastoral responsibility over her, us. So when you say, well, you should address the performance issue and not be trying to probe into whether they're mentally ill, it's, it, I don't feel in my environment it's as simple as that. Yeah, so that, that's a really difficult area, isn't it? Yeah, well done. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think this is one of the areas where, you know, perhaps being the jack of all trades as a minister is, 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 is not the right, right solution. So, um, you know, some churches resolve this by having, you know, the pastor who is the pastor and then they have an executive pastor who is the team manager. Now, most churches won't have that luxury. So I think you're right, it's a difficult situation. And what I would say is you can always escalate this to the queen, all right? So, so, so somewhere there's going to be someone who can answer that question. So if it is the vicar, there should be someone in the diocese who can answer that question. If it is an independent church, that is more difficult, but there are still people from the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches who will be able to perhaps help you bounce through those kinds of situation. Okay, we better call it a day there because people are waiting to, to come back in. Thank you so much.